as we continue and kind of wrap up, if you would, this uh, whole study that we've been doing that's been kind of the last few weeks discombobulated, not being able to do week after week, but uh, studying the life of Abraham over the next few uh, weeks, the next uh, this next month up until missions conference, then Lou has volunteered to be able to do a Bible study. Colossians, is that what you're going to be looking at? That yeah, will start next week for just a few weeks. Let's, uh, let, me, let me throw out this, uh, something to you. Okay, we want to get a letter to Mike and Alicia Tuttle or Package or somebody or whoever it is. I'm just choosing them. You look at the address there, and that address is very important, is it not? And if we break down the address, what does it do? What does it tell us? To get to the right person, where do you start with this address? If you, if, you were mail, if you were the post office, what is the first part of this address that's important? Okay. You've got to start with the country, right? Okay. We've got to identify. It's going to get to the names. We're, going to, we're going, going to identify the country. Once we get to the country, then what do we need to know? Okay. We need to know the town and probably what section of the town based on zip code, like we have here in Lebanon, right? Okay, you have northern, southern type of zip codes. What then do you need to know? The street is going to be important. Okay, we got the street. Now, now which house on that street, which place? And then, depending upon which person in that family, now we're back to who it is that we're sending it to in the personal note. So it's being narrowed down. And we're getting information that is very critical to narrow down to one place or one person. And it's kind of, we did it backwards. When God, just using that, when God is sending Jesus Christ to this earth, he is talking in the beginning of scriptures in the book of Genesis, he is talking sending his son through the human race. Very broad. But now he has to start narrowing it down, right? We have to narrow it down to, okay, which group of people? And then of that group of people, which clan within that group of people, correct? And then of that, of that tribe, then it's, okay, of whose house that belongs to the tribe. If we did it this way, here's what you got in scriptures telling us about the ancestry of Christ. Getting it to a single group of people, we start with Abraham. Then we go to Isaac, and then we're down to Jacob, not the other children of Abraham, not the other ones of Isaac or Jacob. And then in Jacob's tribe, you have the 12, the 12 sons. We get it narrowed down to Judah. And then from Judah, we get it narrowed down to he's got to be a son of David. And then it gets narrowed down to point that he is the Messiah. He is the one, the special person that, that God is identifying as his letter carrier. Then we have all those birth predictions. My point is this. The story of Abraham is critical. It is critical and very, very important. And he gives so many chapters to Abraham just because Abraham is the father of the nations. Abraham is the beginning of this redemptive story as far as working with one group of people, one family in particular. So when we come to Abraham, we talk about this man in so many ways, but he's a, he's a predominant scripture, scripture character. He's predominant in Israel's history. He's their father. They refer to him. We sing that. The kids sing the song, Father Abraham. Based on that idea, he's, he's just critical to the idea of the lineage of Jesus Christ. He is unique in the relationship, one of the very few that is called the friend of God. Aren't you privileged that Jesus Christ in John 15 says, I no longer call you his disciples, servants, but I now call you friends? That we have been elevated to that same unique position of being able to be friends of God? He's a great example. A phenomenal example. In fact, he of many of the Old Testament characters, he's used in the New Testament as an example of faith. He's used as an example of marriage. 
He's used as an example of handling temptations. I mean, he's used multiple times. In fact, let me ask you this question, okay? Why do you think God gives us biographical stories? What benefit is it to read about an Abraham or a David or a Moses? Do you find any benefit of reading about these people in Scripture? Yes, no? What? What do they do for us? They just fill in the gaps of pages in the Bible. They give us examples. Okay, that's, that's critical, okay? Okay, do they give you hope? Do they give you encouragement? Okay. What else did they give you? Hope, encouragement? Perspective. Perspective in what way? Okay, in history? Okay. There, there's any, any other benefit of having biographical characters? Yeah. Sure. 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 It gives us the redemptive history. It gives us practical history. I was talking with the with the um, young parenting class a couple of weeks ago. And we were looking at First Corinthians eleven verse one. Be followers of me, as I am of Christ. Is it okay to have human examples? Yes, yes, as long as those examples are good examples following Christ. Do we need human examples at times? The answer is, we sure do. We sure do. Uh, and this to me is one of the, and I've shared it with you before, for me, one of the most important times in my Christian life of having an example was learning to pray. Just, it, it didn't make sense, but see, see, listening to others pray. And, uh, you know, in simple ways. So having a real-life example, 1 Corinthians talks about this, that they are encouragement, there's examples, they help us to holy living. They show us what is possible, what's expected. They tell us to avoid things, do they not? I mean, don't you love the way that God records biographies, that he records warts and all? And and you said it, Candace, just a moment ago, to give you hope. I am glad that sometimes we get, that sounds terrible, but I am glad that sometimes we get the failures in, recorded in Scripture because otherwise I would think these guys are superhuman and I'm just really low. They give me that hope that, wait a minute, God can use even those of us who stumble and fumble as we go along. You have the idea of this display of God's grace. You have comfort in trials. There are so many benefits for these stories. Well, Abraham is one of those that gives us a phenomenal story that we've already talked about. But I'm going to ask you to join me after we hold on to Genesis 25, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews 11 as we wrap this up and just summarize his life and everything. We're coming to that point in Genesis chapter 25, and this is now at the end of his life. We're going to get the, the last few, few years. Actually, we're going to get quite a few years. But he's going to give us a story. So far, what we've done from Genesis 11 is this. We, are, we have to understand we're covering a period of about 100 years. Because in this time period, he starts at around 70 years of age. Genesis 25, we hear about him dying at 175. So between chapter 11 and chapter 25, we're talking roughly 100 years of, of history going by. In this story, we learn about the way that he conducted himself, family, business, travel. We talk about his walk with the Lord, the way he worshipped, the way he handled conflicts within and without of his home. And so he gives us a lot of different details. We get his ups, 
We get his downs. We get him when he shines bright in faith. We get him in moments where he's lying about his wife and he's trying to manipulate situations. But overall, what you come to is you come to a point where this guy is wrapping up his life and as he's wrapping it up, he isn't living many regrets. As you read chapter 25, the story is, is coming to a point where Sarah has died. She is gone. Isaac has been married away. That's been chapter 23, chapter 24. Now it's the wrap-up of his life. And in this last chapter, we cover approximately 40 years of his life in about 11 verses. So we're going to get just a synopsis of what his life was like at the very end. And so we read and we find out, okay, exactly what happens. What does God highlight If God took 40 years of your life and he recorded it in 11 verses, what would he record about you? Well, here's what God records about uh, about Abraham and tells us a few little tidbits about him. You've got to follow along as I read this. Then again, Abraham took took a wife. Her name was Keturah. And she bare unto him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, and Jokshan. He begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were, and he gives you more names, of grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And then this, uh, again, some more of the children, great-grandchildren. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. <coughs> but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, he gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he, Isaac, yet lived eastward unto the country country, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175. Then Abraham gave up the ghost, died in a good old age, an old man, full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's pretty much the end of it until you get to the funeral in the next couple of verses, and what do we have is this. We have some, just some simple facts, that Abraham started his second family, if you would. After Sarah dies, he marries, has another first wife, and uh, from 137 years on, he's with Keturah. And so she's his wife. She bears him at least six children that we know of that are listed in this passage. It makes comment that of his concubines. I want to remind you that some would say, okay, he had other wives as well or other secondary wives. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know one way or the other, but I want you to understand that according to First Chronicles, Keturah is called a concubine. And as well, with the, the same relationship that you would have with Hagar. So they could be referring to just Ishmael and the sons of Keturah. There could be others. There may not be others involved as well. But we know that he had at least, at 140 years old, he's has, he has um, toddlers running around the house that are calling him dad. At 140, 150, 160, God bless Abraham. We had the two grandkids for the weekend. All I can say is, God bless Abraham, okay, that he's able to handle this and do it and keep up with it. Abraham, we know this fact that God records. Abraham gave all he had to his family while still alive so as to avoid future conflicts. We know that he's protecting Isaac. So he clears out and gives out what he wants given to the kids, and he's preparing. There's a lot of wisdom in this, this whole comment. You know, that he, that what he did. And so we get that fact. We get the fact that God records he's 175. And again, I remind you that he, God gave us the information about his wife. She's the only one in the scriptures that gives the age of when she passed away. And so God's giving us so timetable-wise. I think that goes to what a couple of you said, knowing the history and having an understanding of how that went. And he dies, but we get this fact. This is an important fact. He still is alive even though he dies physically. Because look at the text. It says that he's gathered to his people. 
that could not be referring that he's buried amongst all of his kinsmen. That, that can't be the fact that he's physically gathered to the people because he's buried in the cave of Machpelah. Who's the only other person at this time that's buried there? Sarah, exactly. So it's not like he's gathered to his people in that physical sense. It's got to be the idea that he is gathered in a spiritual sense to his people that who have already preceded him who are in paradise at this point. And so it brings us back to that biblical pattern that when we die, we still live on. That's a fact. There's another fact that we want to point out here. It says that he ended his life full of years. In the Hebrew it has the idea of fulfillment of years, which could be one of two ways of translating it. One way could be a long life, just lots and lots of years physically. Another way of translating the Hebrew could be this, having a very fulfilled type, the idea of not longevity, but quality of life. Not just the quantity of years, but the quality of years with the idea that he has a life that is a very satisfying life. I'm going to think about that for a bit this evening. Is how does he end up at 175? Me, now you wouldn't think this, but me, I would think this. I'd be afraid so many years go by that I could blow it so many times and have so many things I could regret in 175, so get this over with quickly to keep me out of trouble. Abraham is wrapping up his 175 years, and he isn't filled with an, an, an overwhelming amount of regret or an over amount of, I wish I had done things another way. He's, he's peacefully entering into the presence of the Lord. Obviously, that's because of his faith. But what is it in his life that he can finish the race and he's content with the race that he has run? What did he do? How did he operate? Even though we know he's not a perfect man, this much I know, he as a whole, generally speaking, he did what was right before the Lord. In fact, if we jump to another text now, if we jump to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll see exactly in a summary of his life what it was that God says, in your 175 years, this is what I found so commendable and gives you peace that you end up your life. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham in this text where it starts talking in verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. He went out not knowing whither he had went. So I'm going to make this, this observation. Nothing new. We're just summarizing his life. We're recapping it, if you would. That when he was told, he obeyed. That's why I chose a song. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Here's a classic example of it. And God is saying, this is the thing that really I commend Abraham for. That when Abraham was told to do his pilgrimage, he pilgrimaged. He did it. He made himself into a sojourner. He obeyed other commands beyond that. Okay, there are other commands. He's told to practice the art of circumcision with his clan. He listened, which would be very unique and very very abnormal in that society. But he listened. He obeyed when he was told, have your son leave. Your son who's been in your home for well over a dozen years. I want you to have him leave and not live with you anymore. That would be tough. That would be very difficult. And so he agreed to do that, even though he was, and we know it was difficult because he was concerned as we looked at it at that time. He's obeying when God told him to sacrifice your son. He obeyed in that command. We'll come back to that in a moment. Even when he had to give up things that were precious to him, things that were important to him, people that were important to him, he obeyed. 
and he didn't return, he didn't renege on that. In fact, in chapter 11, if you go down, I think it's about verse 15, he even comments that when he had, he, he did not take opportunity to return to his homeland. So he operated by that trusting, that obeying, even though he didn't know the end, what's going to happen. And God commends him, you're trusting me, you don't know what the future holds, but you're patiently trusting me. I was talking to an individual this week who made the comment, they said, you know, in my life up to this point, I'm the type of person in business, I'm the type of person in, in the activities that I've got involved, I made things happen. I, you know, type A personality, that I really, you know, I, I was aggressive. And now I'm in a spot where God is just not giving clear direction. I'm not confident or positive which way the Lord is leading. And what's happening in my life is I'm learning a new experience to wait on the Lord to wait on the Lord. And they said, it's a fascinating journey I'm on for the last few months because as I wait, instead of trying to create an open door, I'm waiting on the Lord. I am finding myself drawn so close to Christ to just wanting to know exactly his direction that it is the, this has been the richest time in my life by learning to just listen to the Lord and be, be inactive to some degree, making sure that when I make a move, God is leading. Well, Abraham was that type of person, well, I'll make a move. I don't know where God is leading, but I'm, I'm going to go until God tells me to stop. And so he's trusting and obeying. Something else that strikes me about this character is he was, he, what he was promised, he believed. Now, we know that again. This passage talks about it. In the next couple of verses, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. He looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God through faith. Also, Sarah, he talks about her receiving the strength. The point being that he's believing what God is saying when he believed that God would give him a land that wasn't his land. He's moving into the area of Lebanon County, let's say. He's moving in. Others have occupied it. But God is saying to him, in the future, this is yours. In the future, this is yours. In the future, this is yours. And he believed it. He believed that this was his. And in that land, he refers to himself even. And he called himself the same thing God in the New Testament calls him, a sojourner, a pilgrim. We'll come back to that in a moment. Talking about how he was living in tents. The idea is that I'm trusting that God is going to give me this land and I'm going to live in a portable housing situation. I'm not going to take it for myself. I'm going to wait for God to give it to me. And I believe he will. And I'm living in these temporary homes that most of us would rather have something with a foundation, something that would be more secure. And so he's there promising, uh, listening to the promises of God, not trying to, to manipulate the situation. Even when land deals are going on, he's not taking land that, that somebody could hold and say, we gave it to you rather than God. He's believing God's promise in God's timing, staying, and that's where, again, I mentioned verse 15. If you look down in it, it makes the comment very clear that they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out. They might have had opportunity to return, but they did not. Why? I believe God is going to give this to us one day. I believe that. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to return home. I'm going to stay here, and I'm just going to continue to trust God. It happened again when he was told, you're going to have a son. took 30 years for this promise to be fulfilled, and he believed, he trusted. Here he is. 
believing in the promises of God, even though he had to wait a long time for some of them, he still believed. Even though he's looking and saying, this seems impossible, he still believed. Even though there was times where others, including his family, questioned what God had promised him, he still believed. Even though he never saw the fulfillment of those promises, he was believing that God would do this. That God would be faithful, that God would take care of it. You and I just have to say, wait a minute, do we still believe? Do we believe, truly, truly believe like that when all of a sudden when it's your prayers? Do you believe he'll answer yours? Do you believe he forgives you? Do you believe in the fact that he will give you the wisdom? He'll give you the understanding. Do you believe that he will meet your financial needs? Sometimes, I've heard this said by a number of folk, I believe God takes care of so-and-so, but I don't know if he'll take care of me. Okay? This is belief. This is believing that, wait a minute, God will take care and do what's best for my kids. Even when they're not, they're not near, even when we can't control things, even when God, in his wisdom, brings something into our life that we don't find pleasant, do we believe this is what's best, that he is doing all that is the best for us and working his will and his way? That's an Abraham's belief. That is the commendable belief. Let me give you another thought. This is highlighted in Hebrews, where it says that when he was here, he focused on there. Okay? He focused on heaven. And that is going to be an argument that is given here for commendation if you look at chapter 11, verse 14, where it talks about, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, a different place. Look at verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly country, wherefore God was not ashamed or is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. His point is Abraham was an individual who truly, truly was, though he was here, careful with his responsibilities, dependable, handling business in a really good way. We saw several times how he handled business people and partners and difficult situations, but he, they weren't his end goal. The, the end goal wasn't just to make more money, make more money, and have more things. The end goal was, I'm seeking a city that's better. The end goal was to him things that were permanent. This stuff's just temporary. That's what the text is implying. That he's an individual that, excuse me, I want to get back to where I was, that he, he has things, but the things don't have him. Let me read a comment that maybe an, uh, somebody else more scholarly can better explain. He puts it this way about Abraham. He says, If we knew that Christ would be coming in a month, we would give full attention to forsaking sin, praying, witnessing, serving, and to all the other things of our Heavenly Father's business. To devote a whole month entirely to the Lord would not be so hard if we knew that it would all be over that soon. But to be about his business month after month, year after year, with his promises seemingly no nearer being fulfilled than when we were first saved, well, that takes patience. That's true. Then he goes on and makes this comment. In one sense, it is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. But in a much deeper sense, it is impossible to be of any real earthly good unless we are heavenly-minded. Only the heavenly-minded will have the patience to continue faithful in God's work when it becomes hard, unappreciated, seemingly unending. There is no greater cure for discouragement, fatigue, or self-pity than, than to think of a, of a better place being in the presence of the Lord one day and of spending eternity with Him. We should make no apology for being heavenly-minded. It is when we concentrate on things below that we live and die with every little thing that goes wrong. 
or seems to last too long or is not successful or things or problems one were not appreciated. That is why Paul tells us to set our minds on things above, not on the things on this earth. When our minds are on heaven, we will be patient with what happens down here. If we look continually at the things of this world, trials, troubles, struggles, money, fame, pleasures, then we cannot help but become absorbed in, in the impatient desires of our flesh. But if we keep focusing on heaven, God, Jesus, then we do not care about what goes on here because we understand suffering hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ, that's normal. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of the world's everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And on and on he writes. How profound. How, how pointed that if you and I are heavenly fixed, we can handle a whole lot more here in this life. We can endure it. Something else about Abraham that strikes me. When he was tested, he trusted. That's what goes on in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, when he was tried, it says, he offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall all your seed be called, believing or counting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also came to him in a figure. His great test he passed. I don't know if I could pass this test. I keep on thinking about this. What if God asked the life of one of my kids? What if God asked the life of one of my grandkids? I don't know if I would do what Abraham did. That would be just the, the ultimate of trials and tests. And yet here he is, he's trusting the Lord, doing what God asks, believing that God would totally totally bring about his promises. It's an amazing step of faith, remaining true to God in difficult trial some situations. How challenging, how encouraging. Some of you are facing some of those things. You've got trial some situations. You've got difficulties with family members. You've got difficulties with somebody you're trying to minister to. You have challenges of somebody giving you opposition or somebody giving you, you know, no time and assuming the worst. You've got situations that are, that are physical or financial. They're difficult. Some in this room are just going through some really challenging moments. Do you trust when you're, when you're being tested? Do you just remain fixed, focused, or do you panic? Do you strike out, strike back? Abraham was one that says, okay, God, you're testing me with this trial. I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to act the way you tell me to act, even though this is going to be really, really costly. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you in those moments. There's a, there's a story that goes that John Bunyan, when he was in prison, they would bring his kids to him to try to get him to recant and stop preaching the gospel. And they would show him how his kids and his wife, they were, they were tried with him. He's in prison, but they are being tried as a family because of the no income, because the lack of help by other people. And he was very concerned, especially he had one daughter who was blind, and he say she was like the apple of his eye. And he is talking and writing in one of his papers about how his family was brought and they were paraded before him in limited contact to put pressure on him to recant and deny the faith and stop preaching. And he wrote these words. He wrote, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down my own house upon the head of my wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. 
Point being, I can't put my family ahead of Christ and deny the faith. But how difficult when your family's there and you're looking at them suffering. But that takes great faith. And you commend individuals like this guy and others who have remained loyal when they are tested. So you look at Abraham and say, okay, he's got a profound faith. When he was blessed, I'm going to add a couple more beyond Hebrews. When he was blessed, he shared with others. He shared with others. What I mean by that is this. When, he, when he's on this earth, he's blessed. Abraham's more, more physically, uh, materially blessed than, than probably all of us, a lot of us. We could combine our wealth, and Abraham would, would have a better bank account in modern figures. And yet for all of that, for the things that he had, and he was very responsible, it, he, he would make sure that family relationships were not in front of possessions. I'm referring to the time in Genesis 13 when there was conflict between him and Lot. And Abraham said, what is priority here? What is priority, possessions or people? And he put the people relationship with Lot ahead of possessions. Lot, you choose. It's better than we don't have a conflict continuing between us. You choose. I'll take the sandy soil. You got the fertile soil, if that's your choice. But he's an individual who, when he's blessed, he is sharing with others. Do you remember the conflict that arose that happened with him and Abimelech? Abimelech, by the way, is not probably a personal name. It's probably the royal name, uh, you know, like a Caesar title. And so Abimelech there in that region, he, um, he and he, his men are having conflict with Abraham's men. Do you remember the story we talked about in Genesis 21? Abraham goes to him and says, we got a conflict. And he points out the conflict, and the, the conflict is over a well. And he points out that I dug the well. My men, this is a well that basically we provided, but your men say it's on your land, so I'll pay you for the well. And he goes way out of his way because he wants to make things right. He wants to maintain testimony. He is saying, okay, it's just not worth. The nickel and diming effect of trying to get ahead of somebody isn't worth losing relationships over. And so he was that type of individual that he owned a lot of things, but the things never owned him. Now that's classic for our day and age. It is too easy to be owned by things, is it not? In the possessions. And so Abraham is an individual that he was, when he's blessed, he is sharing. When he's burdened, he prayed. I read through his entire story again this afternoon just to see, did I miss something? Is there something that I should point out? I was strongly impressed by reading through it one more time today, the multiple chapters, the amount of times this guy prays. That's recorded. That some of those things we didn't even gloss, we didn't even go at or point out how so frequently it talks about how he builds an altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And these aren't the passages where God comes to him, but it's when he initiates the contact with God. And it's time after time after time that he is calling upon the name of the Lord, that he's going to the Lord. And so my point is, just to leave out there a second, he is an individual that in his life, you would, you've got to say, he is characterized by prayer. He is so characterized by prayer, it struck me again as I was reading through it, that he is, he is the one that God says, by the way, if you need prayer, go to Abraham. God commends him. God tells others, go to Abraham, he will pray for you. Wow. Well, so many times God has had that talk with him. In Genesis 18, the story is of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember how he prayed. You know how he was burdened, how he's concerned about Lot and the people there, the unbelievers and his backslidden relatives. You know how he prayed for the needs of his kids when Ishmael is being put out of the house. We talked about it. You know how he prays? 
when, the, when Sarah has been taken into the household of Abimelech and the wombs are shut up and he's to pray for the healing of those in that household who innocently got into this situation because Abraham and Sarah didn't tell the truth. And so Abraham is an individual that, wow, he was really strongly given to prayer. And you've got to ask yourself, wait a minute, am I a prayer? Am I an individual like this good example? Am I one who, it says that, when he went out daily to stand before the Lord, could, would, would God writing my 40 years of my, the last 40 years say, he daily went out and met with me? Would, would God say to your friends, your neighbors, like he did to Abimelech, you go to, this, you go to Abraham and you have Abraham pray for you to be healed. If God is going to pick somebody to pray, would he pick you? So you could be the prayer warrior for your co-workers, for your friends, for your relatives. That's what he does with Abraham. So this is no minor point in this man's life. He is highlighted by God himself as being one who in faith prayed. Well, wait a minute. Did the prayer build the faith? Did the faith build the prayer? Is that the proverbial chicken and the egg? Either way, the man did it. And so should we. Let me point out something else. Okay? As he was aging, he's active. I'm back to Genesis 25. He's, he's in this text. He's very active as an elderly individual. Here's what I want to just highlight that could be beneficial for some of us here. During that span of his last 40 years that are talked about in Genesis 25, he is an individual who, he, after his spouse passed away, who he dearly, dearly loved. He doesn't go into this pent-up mode of depression, loneliness, bitterness, isolation, that basically he's the walking dead. He doesn't do that. Okay? He's an individual who still maintains lifestyle. Now, I'm not advocating that everybody should get remarried and have six more kids. Okay? But the passage does say that he is investing in life. The passage does imply that he is still investing in the future of his family. He is still actively involved in the care, in the maintenance of his family and preparing for them. He is involved with dealing with people not isolated, not, not lonely in the sense that he has he is purposely taken himself and put himself in a box. He's an individual that is living. He's an individual who is active in, in taking the time. Uh, just for fun, I want an internet in, in two minutes. Just all these different people who in their upper years that we would call elderly, they did some amazing things. Oh, by the way, some of these are not, aren't that old anymore, are they? As we look at the ages. Some of them were looking and saying, wait a minute, they have done some really, really great things, some marvelous things as they get older. And they aren't just stopping to live. They're, they're moving on. I have uh, did one of the uh, um, books here on, on, on tape about the Lesseps who and how they did the Panama Canal. And these guys were active. This man's active. He kept on people writing about how he, even though he was in his 80s and up into his 90s, he was such an active individual. You, ha- you have individuals time after time that they just, they contribute, they work, they do certain things, they, they continue to try. Some are doing for the first time some events and some activities that are kind of amazing, that kind of would be on my bucket list if I had such a thing. And so you have individuals who, you know, like even at 100 years of age, still out water skiing. Well, God bless that he can get up, okay, and still do that. But individuals who look and we look at and say, wait a minute, when we're getting older, we should still maintain living for the glory of God. 
on the back of your notes, it just gives you some ideas. I was one man was writing to a group that's saying, "Hey, listen, you want to have a day, a, a life where you are, you are doing things in a practical sense that will help you to have a fulfillment of years." Take some practical advice on some of the way you approach day in and day out. Let me end with this so that we can get to our prayer time. When he, what he received, he gave. I think, this is me personally, but I think this is one of the most classic commendations of Abraham's life. It is found in Genesis 18. It is when Jesus Christ and the two angels come and talk to him, and Abraham is having conversation and saying, Why are you here? And he says, why should I hold this back from Abraham? And then Christ, I think it's a theophany, a Christophany, he makes comments here, and this is what he says about Abraham. To me, this is one of the most classic commendations you can make about anybody. And here's the words. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. He is an individual that received a lot of information from the Lord. He's an individual who received a lot of blessings from the Lord, and he told his household. He shared it so that Eliezer, his servant, was able to walk by faith. If it was Eliezer looking for Ishmael's wife, he shared so that his children had a foundation that they could hang on to. In, in fact, it was generational. Here's a man that what he received, he departed and gave on, deposited into the life of his offspring. Do you? Is that God's commendation of you? That you and me, as we're getting into a second phase of life, or we're getting done with raising the kids, or we're getting done with certain phases of our life, do we give what we've received? Could that be the commendation that God would make? That here he is, a great example to follow, tremendous character that God says we should look at his life, see the ups and see the downs, but we should commend him. And we should examine our lives to say, hey, if we put it paper on top of paper and want to do a tracing of something underneath that paper so we get the same image, Abraham's worth being the dark print that we would look and trace and say, here's how I want to live. He is a commendable character that God says is a worthy example for you and me. Take it to heart. Let's see this evening, take one of those practices, let's pray. Let's pray as Abraham did for the backslidden, for the lost, for family, for others, and let's seriously beseech the Lord to, be, to work on behalf of some of these needs. Thanks for listening.